Hey everybody, this is Jeff Schulman, and before we begin today's episode, I just want to acknowledge two companies who I am so grateful for investing in a more inclusive future. As you may know, one of the things I'm most proud about is partnering with Marty Burris to launch the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, a program that is empowering inclusion-minded professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first product management role. And this started as a volunteer effort, and I'm so grateful that Starbucks was our first sponsor, and T-Mobile is a platinum sponsor. Both of these companies are investing in this program that is not just broadening access to economic opportunity, but preparing the next generation of product managers from historically marginalized communities who care to build for everyone. So Starbucks and T-Mobile, these are two companies it's a pleasure to work with who are investing not only their money, but their employees are investing their time and pouring it into a program that is building a family and preparing the next generation of product managers. So shout out to T-Mobile, shout out to Starbucks, and now enjoy today's episode. Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers, but who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Welcome everybody, my name is Jeff Schulman and I'm the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. And we host this every week in the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast recorded live here on LinkedIn to make sure that knowledge and connections and community are available to everyone around the world. And we have a really exciting conversation today focused on mistakes that made me a better product manager. And the me being Charles Endosu, and, and please uh, correct me if I'm getting that pronounced incorrectly in just a moment here. But we've got three, uh, we also have Nikem here. Uh, we have three product managers who are going to share mistakes they made that made them better product managers. And then Red, are you ready to tell them how they can get involved in today's conversation? Absolutely. Well, it looks like we already have one person raising their hand. Uh, in general, we have the opportunity in about 15 minutes, 20 minutes to start moving from conversation to open Q&A. So if you're somebody who has a question in the audience, please put it in comments, raise your hand, not yet, but coming up as well. If you're shy, you can DM me directly on LinkedIn. There is a Slack channel that we've created for how to succeed in product management. If you're in, interested and want to join this, especially after we have a live show today, Jeff, and this goes to podcast land, go ahead and ping us and say, I'd love to join the channel. A lot of times people ping me there with Q&A they'd like to ask on the show. So with that in mind, we're here for you. We're ready to rock and roll. Get ready to start writing those questions down because you're going to have an opportunity to ask them soon. Back to you, Jeff. All right. So we are doing a live recording of the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. Three amazing product leaders who have done some amazing things. And they're also going to pull behind the curtain and share some not so amazing things they did. But let's start with the amazing things. Charles, you pulled this group together. Very grateful. I'm excited to learn from all three of you. Can you just quickly tell us about your journey in product management and, and maybe a proud accomplishment so people know why they want to learn from your mistakes? Uh, sure. Thank you. First and foremost, uh, thank you, Jeff, for the invite. Thank you, Jeff, and also thank you, Dosu and Kim, for volunteering to join the podcast. So I've known Dosu and Kim for over five years. We're all in the Seattle area. We have worked together on different companies in the time being. And I would say my journey to product was definitely, I will say, a sine wave instead of like a straight shot. So for folks who are on the call, who are doing other roles, who want to do product management, I'm the guy to talk to. I've worked in supply chain marketing operations before moving to product management. And I've worked at companies like a McMaster car in Chicago, Amazon, and a small company in uh, Washington named uh, Microsoft. And I'm currently a PM at Netflix. And I've done B2B, B2C, pretty wide range. And I've also invested and led a startup that failed. So definitely have some key examples and experiences here. So I look forward to the conversation today. I'm not just uh, me sharing, but also me learning from Dosu and Kim in the audience. Back to you, Jeff. 
All right. Thank you, Charles. Thanks for being here today. And thanks for bringing this great group. I'm excited to learn from all three of you. And again, we're going to get into specifics. So they've made mistakes. So you and the audience don't have to. And we're going to bring those to light and not just stay at the general framework area, hopefully really dive deep into some of the mistakes they made, why they made them at the time, why they seemed like the right idea at the time, and then how they've changed going forward. So uh, Dosu, please tell us a little bit about your journey and product and maybe one thing you're proud of. So we know before we get to the mistakes, you know, what are you proud of? Yeah. Hello. My name is Dosu and I am currently a product manager at Meta. I work on the Facebook profile team. And just to give you a quick understanding of what I do, profile is there to help people express themselves and their identities so that they can connect with their family, friends and and community. And profile historically has been focused on individuals and representing people. But over time or more recently, what I'm most proud of is helping build out the extension of profile from a product to a full platform that enables different kinds of identity experiences. So the the newest, most prominent one is allowing businesses and professional use cases to be represented on profile. They used to be on what we called Facebook pages, but now they're on Facebook profiles. And building that out was really fun, really challenging, and it's something I'm really proud of. A little bit about my background, I'm, you know, uh, I have a computer, electrical computer engineering background with you know, a master's in business. And I've worked in product across different industries, started in the video entertainment space, working at Dish Network and on Sling TV, building streaming technology, and then also worked at Amazon. So that's e-commerce. And then in, in travel, I've worked at Expedia and now in social media at Meta. So different experiences across the product spectrum and happy to chat more about, you know, transitioning between various types of domains and going from consumer facing product to also internal systems facing and and internal customer facing products. I will hand it back to Jeff. All right. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Rich experiences and looking forward to to learning from your mistakes. Nikem, first, did I get that right? And second, welcome. Please tell us a little bit about your journey and product and one thing you're proud of accomplishing. Sure. It's Nikem. So you were quite close. (laughs) Hi, everyone. I'm a product leader at Instacart. I currently work on search. So if you use Instacart and you're trying to find your favorite food or item, I'm the person that makes it happen. Prior to Instacart, I started my career on the East Coast, actually, in New York. I worked at Morgan Stanley, working on our wealth management tech platforms. And then I moved over to Washington State to work at Microsoft. And over at Microsoft, I worked on both consumer aspects of things. So Bing, I worked on enterprise, really um, Aviva Topics, which is a knowledge system. And then I moved back to consumer to work on the news feeds, which you see on your Windows OS or your Edge browser. And that was sort of my journey before joining Instacart. So overall, I'm the kind of person who loves just going deep into problems for, you know, different spaces, different types of companies, and also just different types of end users and consumers. One thing I would say I'm super proud of is just, you know, two years, close to two years ago, I decided to build my own product. It's called Dalu. And it's really around connecting those who are looking for specialized services um, with those who do it as a hobby. And for me, it's one of the most magical and proudest moments for me because, you know, I had this great career through like all these large companies, Morgan Stanley, Microsoft. And then I thought to myself, like, hey, can I can I do something outside the comfort zone of a big company? So really just being able to come up with an idea, you know, test the market and really just pitch to like friends and also just acquaintances to come in and really build this product, get it out there. And then just the next step of actually like sourcing for customers and getting feedback and fulfilling orders. So I think for me, that was most magical for me because you sort of learn how to flex yourself in a kind of like an uncomfortable space without all the comfort that you're used to and like the big team. So excited to share more with all of you all on this call. All right. So as we've heard three stories, I just want to make sure everybody gets a learning lesson. For those aspiring to be product managers, there were varied paths into product. And then for those who are product managers wondering if you're stuck in the same industry or the same kind of product for the rest of your career, we've seen three people who have made a lot of transitions and getting varied experiences. So as we get to questions, if you have questions upon those transitions and and what helped them make them, we're happy to hear those. But again, I just want to make sure people realize there's many paths to product and there's many paths to working on the products that that you want to work on. I'm going to go in reverse order and put you on the spot again, and Kim, if that's all right with you, and just each of you share one mistake that you made, and then we'll kind of collectively, instead of me running the show, collectively ask questions that anybody has to understand 
what you learned from it. But what's one mistake that's helped make you a better product manager? That's a quite interesting question. I'm happy to start first. I would say, as you could tell from my story, I'm the kind of person who's worked in different spaces. And I think one mistake I made was sort of like jumping in very quickly, especially when I've changed teams or just changed companies. I think just naturally, right, you have your strengths and you come in with your strengths. So just specifically, when I think about my transition from Morgan Stanley to Microsoft, I came into Microsoft in Bing and Bing is a consumer facing web experience, online experience, versus in Morgan Stanley, I was working on like a desktop product for financial advisors and branch services. For me, coming from Morgan Stanley, I knew how to do things like very precisely and really think deeply about like, okay, this has to work. Otherwise, the impact is like millions and billions. So when I came in with that same mentality to Microsoft and Bing, it was, for lack of a better word, I think it was quite shocking for a lot of people. First of all, I dressed differently from the rest of the team. So they were like, are you in marketing or what's going on? But I think just in terms of like jumping in too quickly, I think the team was shocked that I was moving with such like high bar for precision. Whereas just understanding that in the consumer space, other things matter, right? So one, consumers are more flexible to try on new experiences. You have things like A-B testing for the purpose of learning. And then you just also have to think about other things such as like, hey, time to market is quite important because you're competing with other competitors. So even though I came in with my strength, I really just learned that as you switch teams or as you go into a new space, it's important to like pause to allow yourself to really understand and absorb like, okay, what's the culture of this space? What are the goals that this company cares a lot about? For example, at Microsoft and Bing, it's really around the people, right? So sometimes, oh, I think very importantly, it really just embedded in me the importance of, hey, if you see something wrong, think of yourself as someone who can help like coach the next PM through things or like help provide ideas. Like your goal is not just to like point out the mistakes or point out the risks, think about alternative ways to solve things. So Microsoft really cared about like people. So I would say like, it's really thinking about pausing, as I said, pause, observe the goals, observe the culture, take time to, you know, build relationships so you're not moving alone. And just in that ways, it helps you to really understand how you can use your strength in a way that's meaningful to that organization and sort of just opens you up to like other learnings and other ways that you can grow. So my big mistake would be jumping in too quick, especially as I switch environments. All right. Thank you. Charles or Dosu, do you have any, do you want to double click on anything she said to better understand what she learned, how she learned it, or any other questions before we get to your mistakes that made you a better product manager? So I um, mean, Cam, as you're going through this learning, how are you feeling? Because I think a lot of the, the PM job is also feelings because it's a bit of a lonely job. So can you talk a bit of how you were feeling and how you managed either your emotions or your thoughts to get to a better place? Uh, that's a great, <laughs> great question. I think definitely it gets better as I change environments, but sometimes it's hard. So I think, first of all, it's the initial shock of like, hey, this worked in this other place. Like, what's going on? Why are people like freaked out <laughs> that I'm also pushing for like such high bar? So I think initial feeling was like just confused and shocked and maybe sometimes feeling like maybe they just don't get me. <laughs> what has really helped has just been one, just leaning on my network of folks who've also like switched environments, especially environments similar to mine. It's definitely very soothing hearing folks say like, oh yeah, what you're going through is normal. I remember when I was switching to Instacart, one of the biggest advice I got from a lot of my mentors was like, hey, don't jump in too quick. You just know. The first few meetings, just listen, just observe, just write notes on what you're observing and what people are saying, how they are speaking, and just don't jump in too quickly. So I would say like, it felt rough at first, but I would say it's gotten better. And honestly, it wasn't the end of the world at first at Microsoft. Like, yes, I got feedback from folks who just, you know, just through like lunchtime hangouts were able to confide in me to say, hey, try things differently. But really, I got promoted at Microsoft like 10 months coming in because they were like, oh, yeah, you just blazed away as he came in. So it turned out well, like getting that recommendation for the good work. So I felt good after like that one year, approximately one year mark. But initially when you, you seem lost, it's just knowing that it's a normal feeling because you're in a new environment. And, uh, actually, let me jump in next because I think my story also kind of touches on the emotion and the feel. So the failure or the learning, as I like to call it, I mean, PM is a job where you cannot hit 100%. To hit 100%, you have to be an accountant. But when you're in it and you're failing, you feel like uh, it's the end of the world. 
you are a failure. You can't see past tomorrow. And one of my uh, managers gave me the best advice, like take the day off. And I was like, hmm, interesting. So to rewind, the failure here or the setback was at a previous company, I was PMing a consumer feature in an enterprise world. The feature was password management. And what happened was I got the user need wrong. The why I was right, the user need was wrong. And being a consumer feature in an enterprise world, you have this challenge of, you know what you want to do, and then the struggle of where do you put it, which endpoint. At a company like Microsoft, you have numerous competing kind of features and endpoints so that it kind of becomes which team is available, which team is ready. So I made the wrong bet, and that led to a place whereby in the leadership review with uh, one of our EVPs, the feature of the project got shut down. And as a PM, that was a very, very high-profile meeting to go in to get shut down. So they felt that the pain of that failure. But then the silver lining is the team and I got a second shot to build the same feature with the same team again. So um, this time around, we really honed the user need, really focused on the why, and used our product kind of focus approach to end up on the right endpoint. So in this case, the password manager feature ended up being in the Authenticator app. So anyone who uses the Authenticator app for work, there's a tab where you see all your passwords that roam across Edge and the play that was cross-platform. So what started off as one of my biggest L's ended up becoming a big W because we got a very unique chance. It hasn't happened to me ever since to redo what we got wrong. But I'll say in the moment, that feeling of, I botched it, am I going to get fired? Do I lose credibility? These are all things that are top of mind. And in my case, taking a day off really helped me reset. And like Inken mentioned, I have a very awesome group of product management friends that um, serve as counsel. Dosu, Inken, and also Ayuba, who's in the audience, are part of my crew that I chime in and I share like my wins and my L's and my challenges with. And we all lift each other up. I'm curious to know, Charles, do you have other people around you to share their, their L's, right? Because taking the day off to think about your L and like recover from it might actually be a lonely place to be. But if there are other people around you who have failed forward and are open about their failures, I imagine that would be different. So what has that been like for you in that experience? Yeah, I mean, um, I think more PMs should share their L's. I think... Um, it's a very competitive space whereby we're all collaborative, but nobody wants to share their else like publicly. So in my current company, fantastic culture, fantastic PM culture. But fundamentally, when it comes to else, everybody goes like, you ask your PM, tell me your biggest loss, you can just feel them wins. In my case, I try to keep a good group of friends who don't work in tech and who are also not PMs. So I just get to hang out with quote unquote normal people when I'm off work and that's helped. But I'll say um, sharing with other seasoned PMs or other folks in other industries, when you take a step back and abstract, um, everybody has challenges in their roles. It's just that the PM role feels so pressure cooked and it's, um, it's a one to many role whereby most PMs are mapped to 10x the number of stakeholders. So it just feels like there's no one you can talk to. Netflix, my former managers, my current managers and other PM peers have been fantastic sounding boards. And in some cases, I've actually ended up becoming genuine friends outside of work also. So that's how I've been able to leverage the network in the company, outside of company, to help deal with L's and also to celebrate the W's. Because um, when they come, you really have to celebrate those. Awesome. I can jump in and talk about my L. And mine is a little different because this is more of a regret. And it's not one of those that turned into like a win at the end. Um, I want to talk about when I switched from Amazon to Expedia you know, new and coming in, I was trying to find the right balance between settling in with the team that hadn't had a PM in a long time versus, you know, coming in and being a change agent. And and I think I got the balance wrong. And let me tell you why. I was working on the localization technology platform, which is basically how you localize or translate content into other languages. And Expedia being a travel company needs to help people get from place to place all over the world and needs to speak the language of the world, basically. And what I noticed was we had a focus on translation quality and we wanted to have the best translation of all the different providers we could use. So we would leverage different technologies, we would leverage linguists, but at the end of the day, the, the bar was to have the best 
quality translation. And the goal was to be locally relevant globally. We wanted to sound like locals when someone in another language was reading our content. And I think that was that was a good North Star, but in practice, it led us to try and leverage manual approaches to the point that it didn't allow for very high speed and rapid iteration on content translation. And so my stakeholders are all internal and you know the focus being on on translation quality meant that we basically missed the boat on understanding what mattered to you. Conflation between building a better horse or a faster horse versus changing the whole system. And the goal was not to have the highest translation quality. The goal was to help people travel from point A to point B. And my understanding of that mistake was, you know, being a couple of years removed from, from that incident, you can take a step back and see what other providers like Airbnb did. And they went with straight machine translation and captured the global market very quickly. And so it's actually quite hard to detect that, you know, you're not moving fast enough or you're not creating a bigger pie if your business is still growing sequentially and, and on track and on schedule but you're not capturing the bigger opportunities. So the failure there for me was making sure that I understood what mattered to the end user, not just my internal user or my internal stakeholders, making sure that I was building a localization platform that was solving that end user need and measuring the right outcomes that we wanted to enable. It wasn't just, you know, does the quality of the strings or the text you translated sound well to a local who has been speaking the same dialect all their lives? It was more, are you able to get them the necessary information? Are the core bits of the translation broken? If you can stay in one night with an early checkout, does the user always understand that? Or are you trying to sound more decorative and more local in a way that does convey the same message, but at a higher cost, adds a higher lead time to translation, et cetera? So I think from that standpoint, this is a more technical product thinking exercise around making sure you understand what that right outcome is. And at the end of the day, as a PM, you are supposed to be a change agent. And so continuing to improve our translation quality, which felt in line with what the team had been doing for a long time, may have been the comfortable thing to do, but not necessarily the most valuable thing for your users. All right. Thank you. That was a great story. And real quick, we're going to get to audience questions. We have one person, a couple people waiting on stage. We're going to get to your questions in just a moment. I have one question and I'm just hoping you can give it quick so we can get to the audience questions. But I asked you, what's a mistake you made that made you a better PM? And so in general, how do you know if you're making a mistake? What are the metrics or what are the indicators that give you a sense of that's something I don't want to do again. That's something I want to learn from. So how do you know you've made a mistake? And I'm going to leave this open to whoever wants to come off mute. It looks like NCAM came first. <laughs> I think, so if you're building a product, at least in my case, right, because it was more of like a relationship mistake, you sort of just notice either like, People are quiet when you speak and you're like, okay, did I just do something forbidden? Or if you're lucky, like also in my case, someone would like, hey, let's go for a walk and then they'll tell you. So it's also very important as you switch environments to present yourself as someone who is approachable. Because I think in my case, because I hope I was approachable, but I think if, because of that, I had you know the luxury of someone coming up to me and like saying like, hey, don't take it the wrong way, but here's a different way you could approach this sort of situation. So you know, either the room will get quiet or someone will tell you. Okay, that, that's a good story. Thanks for sharing. Dosu, it looks like you've got one. Yeah, I think there's always the challenge of pressure testing your product principles and how you operate. And it actually requires some external force and external pressure. So you need to seek feedback from the unpopular places. In my view, it might be just using a competitor's product or just trying to solve the problem as though you are not at the company you are at building the product you're building. Like, are you able to, the answer is transportation. It's not necessarily, can I get a horse to go faster? Can I get from point A to point B faster? So try to solve problems without leveraging the existing tools that you're building that you're already familiar with. Those are ways to pressure test your framework of thinking and, and principles you apply to see if they still hold true. It's necessary to do that from time to time. And that way you can update anything that's outdated or any hypothesis or approach that you had that is no longer valid. Just saying, um, in addition, plus one to Dosu and in Cam, and also flagging that it's 
very hard to fix a mistake when a product is being built because to build a product you bring together multi you know cross-functional group of design engineer researchers devs policy etc so once you kind of get that ball rolling it's really hard to stop it and what you don't want to do is to wait for lack of product market fit to indicate the product or service or initiative has failed so that's why as a pm it's like the number one job is be crystal clear on your why really understand your why and user need because once you do that a product can fail for a multitude of reasons if a product should fail it will be due to other causes versus the pm you know like i think those who shared instead of making the horse run faster should you do something else one thing that i hope the product discipline does more is knowing when to pause and stop work and having that being celebrated no one ever gets promoted from like killing a product that isn't working or a feature or project you're building you get promoted by delivering so i'll say incentives are misaligned so um, when you are in a product that is not working the incentives are try and make it better versus let's like stop and pause so that's something that i'll say it's an open thing i don't know if it's a solve for but something i think very deeply about and make sure that my whys and my user needs are crystal clear before we embark on something yeah and just plus one to that is just thinking about like not just the why for the organization but the why for yourself i think that's very important at the end of the day to to check yourself against good thinking there charles and also yeah one thing i wanted to mention was to catch a mistake early you have to be testing early and oftentimes your early version of your product can be embarrassing i've noticed like in the world I live in at Meta, building products at scale, usually you have to test features in increments. And it's hard to show the kind of progress you want to show to leadership when you have a very small change that is going to ladder up to a very big change. And so it's tempting. And one of the biggest mistakes I've made is try a big bang approach and like make a big change because it's very visible and you want to make sure that it's a visceral thing that users can react to and you get signal. But oftentimes when you bundle a lot of changes together, it's tough to learn what change drove any kind of impact or any kind of signal you're reading. So the way I would get around this is share the full vision, but execute in little steps. And execution is not just like working with engineers to crank out code and, and ship a test, but executing also means getting your design partners to work with on mockups and wireframes, showing those to users through rapid research or some lightweight way of getting early feedback. And if you can do these things, you're able to catch some things early or you're able to make sure you gather more signal in certain areas to find mistakes before you go too deep and you go too far. Super quick, just to chime in on um, work. One thing PMs do is I learn a lot from my fellow PMs. Do also just sharing that I have a meeting right after this podcast where we're doing some A-B testing and we're trying to figure out how many cells, go big, go small, go incremental. And those whose advice I'm definitely going to take into that meeting that I'm going to have right after this podcast. All right. That's the magic of bringing really smart people together to exchange ideas. Hopefully everybody in the audience is able to put some of what we've talked about so far into practice on your jobs. And if not yet, coming up soon, because Red, it's their chance to get their questions answered instead of my questions answered. Uh, Red, are you ready to do your thing? <laughs> Never gets old. <laughs> Yeah, you don't have Sumea this week to laugh with you. So <laughs> Charles will give me a laugh, I think. It might be a pity laugh, but he's been on this podcast before. Absolute pity laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who are here right now present, and I don't mean those who are listening to our podcast, thank you for downloading it. And for those who don't know, we have a podcast. We take these shows, we record them, and we make it so that they are accessible for all to listen to it rather than just making it exclusively about today. We have nothing to sell. We're trying to get our message out there. And one of the messages we want to get out there right now is if you have a question, this is your opportunity to ask. This is your chance. So raise your hand right here within LinkedIn Live, and we'll be able to pull you up on stage. If you want to message me directly, just go find my face, click on it, and send me a message, or go to the comment section and ask away. But with that in mind, we've had a very patient guest who is staring off into the ether, off into the distance, a visionary. If you could just see the photo, Jeff, that I'm looking at right now, it is so inspirational that I feel like 
whatever question they ask, the bar is really high. So without further ado, what I laugh at my jokes and nothing happens, but Jeff laughs at his. And the world loves him for it. <laughs> well, not I, I, I'm sorry. I should give you a laugh. But this isn't just any visionary. This Since it's recorded, we're going to give let him be anonymous unless he wants to say who he is. But he's a fellow in our Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. He is passionate about building inclusive products. So this is that visionary look is real. He's vision towards the future <laughs> of inclusion in product management. Will, last name, anonymous. What do you got for us? So I have to say that is the best introduction I've ever had in my entire life. So that right there was worth coming to this call. Thank you so much. The question that I had was for Doso. When you were looking at those very hyper-localized translations and you were looking for signals around that, what signals did you observe that told you, wow, these translations are not good enough or they are good enough or they are so inaccurate that that they're causing a detriment in some way did you get any signals around like that specific part that you were reading in that problem okay so that that's a great question at expedia a lot of human linguist translation was applied on top of machine translation and so the translation quality was generally very high i think The signal I was looking for was whether it needed to be that high in order to solve the user need. Because if you're doing pure machine translation, it's pretty much instant, and you short circuit that feedback loop. But if you add linguists to try and augment the quality of the translation, it then takes a matter of days. You have project managers coordinating what language needs to go to what linguist, and has it been reviewed before it's checked back into the into the repository. And so for me, I think the important signal to look for when you're trying to reduce translation quality is to understand, one, what benefit do you get? So what does faster translation get you? That could mean if someone stayed in a hotel tonight and left a review right on checkout, that review could be out instantly across all languages globally. And the question is, what's that worth? And that translation might be a bit rougher, but is it worth more? Does having more translations quickly matter? It might matter to newer properties that just have one or two reviews and they can get more reviews in quicker and therefore make their properties more appealing for people to book because they can see reviews and, and decide that they want to book. That That's one example. And so it was more a question of understanding what that was. And to your point on like, how do you know if it's good enough? you need to be able to connect your signal from other sources. So for example, from customer service, users complaining about things they read in the description of the hotel. The hotel said it was going to have breakfast before 8 a.m., but maybe the translation meant breakfast until 8 a.m. And that got that wrong. You'll get a nasty gram from from a customer. They'll probably like reach out to customer support trying to get some compensation. So that's a way you can start to like bridge those gaps. You want to find those things as quickly as possible and fix them before it gets too big uh, because you might overwhelm customer service. You might exceed their budgets for issuing refunds and goodwill credits. But those are the types of things I would look for in terms of signal and whether reducing quality in one way gives you leverage in another way. Does that expand use cases? Does that give you new, new opportunities and possibilities? On the flip side, you also want to know if you can detect whether reducing the quality is causing harm to the core product experience. Okay, wow, we got an answer, Will. It doesn't stop there though, Will. You can see what happens on this show is there's there's potential. I wait for it every show, like a shark with chum in the water, controversy. I'm always chasing it. PMs are so nice to each other. They always seem to agree. I'm hoping that one of two things will happen. Either Charles or Enkem will add to this idea the question you had and further address it, or they might challenge what Dosu said. Either way, it's a win-win. So I'm putting it out there to the court folks. Enkem, Charles, anything you'd like to add to that or maybe something you'd like to push back on? Nah, Dosu knocking on the park, so. It it was a great answer. (laughs) You see, Jeff, every show, every show, I, I mean, I'm serious. They always get along, they always agree. I gotta tell you, man, I'm just never gonna get the gloves into the. Into the- <laughs> Look, you don't. I don't quit on the. Are you ready? And you don't quit on the controversy. But and Kim came off of mute, so maybe she's got something for us. 
No, Gossel really knocked it out of the park, so I promise to disagree yes. on the next one. Good. <laughs> Good. My heart stopped for a minute. As the person asking the question, the only lingering thought that I did not articulate was I heard a lot of, of the metrics leaning toward the qualitative, and I'm wondering what kind of quantitative hard numbers were looked at as part of those signals, if there were. I was just curious about like how some of those might have been articulated. So the quantitative signals you look at when it comes to translation, there are different pillars you're trying to optimize for. There's quality, there's cost, and there's speed. And so, you know, these are opposite ends of a triangle and and you basically cannot move one without moving at least one other one. So going with just machine translation gives you the lowest cost, the highest speed, but it also gives you the lowest quality, right? And so that's just an internal thing you look at when you're running a localization platform. But what you want to look at is the outcome, the business outcome you're trying to drive or the, the user outcome you're trying to drive. And those are measured in different ways depending on what the use case is. So if you build an, a service or API to power translations for reviews, then you want to look at metrics around people clicking the thumbs up that this review is helpful, right? So that's a very quantitative metric you can look at. Um, if you are looking at whether translations of a hotel's description page is high quality, I think that's an area where you have to do some offline aggregation of metrics across different domains between like customer support, the booking conversion funnel, and other avenues. So there are different ways to look at it. You need to understand what are you trying to optimize for? Where is this localization platform being applied? And based on that use case, you can define the right success criteria and metric you're looking for. Ah, thank you very much. And I just want to give a shout out to the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator Program offered by the Foster School. Jeffrey and team and mentors do a fantastic job. And I highly recommend it for anyone who wants to grow in product as a discipline. Wow, Jeff, what do you say to that? I love it, man. I love it. Thank you, Will. Thanks for the dedicate to the program and, and sharing the word. Red, what do you got for us? You got another question for the crew up here? Oh, yeah. Now, again, to protect the identity of the individual, we're going to call them Purple, you see, just because why not? I'm Red. So Purple reached out to us and they asked the following question. How do they find motivation after the mistake they have done? Because it is in the nature of product management to fail often, but it might get difficult at times to motivate oneself to continue to iterate and go over the discovery cycle again. Mm. So knock down and get back up. Who has advice mm. about how to handle this? I think an important thing is to have lessons learned out of every failure. And if you're able to capture the lesson, then the failure becomes a valuable input or insight into future projects and products. And it, act, it actually can be rejuvenating to say, oh, I learned this thing from this experience or this test or this thing I built. And therefore, I know how to better approach the problem the next time. I know what my next iteration is going to be. I think the most frustrating thing for product managers, if you have something fail and you don't know why, Actually, in my experience, when something fails and we don't know why, we actually run additional tests to isolate the point of failure. The learning is so, so valuable that it gives you ammo or it gives you fuel to go and pursue the next iteration because now you know what not to do in order to get back in the same place. So for me, the thing that can help me get back up is making sure that there's a very clearly understood diagnosis or root cause for why you failed and what you would do differently if you could do something differently. Oh, and you know what we have MCAM before you go in and weigh in and Dosu, thank you for that. In addition to answering the question, throw out one guilty pleasure or one exercised item, something like a squishy ball or going and seeing a really silly movie, just something that psychologically also helps you get through this, not just knowing that you're following the code book. So NCAM, back to you. Um, do you want me to start with like something that gets me through? I think you can choose the order, but that would be great. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I would say definitely like getting a burger. It's always fun to just like bury myself in a double cheeseburger. And I'm like, okay, this is good. <laughs> now on to the next thing. So that's one guilty pleasure right there. I think just in general, to add to kind of what Dosa said and just think about it a little bit differently, 
it's, you know, knowing the why at the end of the day. So it doesn't really matter the failure or while the failure could be like very depressing. It's knowing that like, okay, the problem the customer had is still very valid, right? So how can I just sort of pick myself back up and go after it? But then also even for yourself, like you have your own why, which is like, you know, in this team or in this company or on this project, because I want to learn X, I want to make an impact. I want to be proud of what I'm building and I want to tell the world about it. So I think sometimes just repeating that to myself really helps. And other times it's, you know, you see some of these quotes about like, hey, it kind of takes the hundred time to be successful and maybe not like all the trials before. So that keeps me going. But then also it depends on the goalposts, right? So for example, we have like quarterly goals. And if I feel like, okay, I've tried something out once or twice and I haven't met my goal. I sometimes just move on, at least for that for that period of time. I think it's important to know that like, even if you are solving a problem, it's also quite important to like take a step back and think like, okay, is the solution still valid for this point in time for different reasons? Like one, does the customer have all the other alternatives? Or two, do we have just other ideas that could be like either more interesting to try out or could actually give us more sure wins? And sometimes it's just like taking the L at that point in time and moving on to other things. So to summarize, I would say like you just making sure you you can identify your why, both from like a customer perspective, but also your personal why. But then also knowing that it's okay to move on, especially if there are bigger goals that you have to hit in a time period. Find your why and smash a double cheeseburger. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know when it's okay to move on? So I think it's that honest reflection on like, what have we really tried? So let me give you an example. I may not be able to go into specifics. So there's this concept we have today on on the team, a project I'm working on. And we kind of thought that like, hey, users really care about like X, right? And this is why they don't retain on the platform. So we should go after this. And, you know, I had my manager saying like, hey, I, I think we've done a couple of experiments. Let's move on. And for me, like, you know, I kind of push back and say, I don't think we've done a good job yet because we've only run like two experiments, which only ran for 10 days. And on average, we run experiments for like a month to sort of understand different trends. So I think it's really taking a step back to just assess the quality of your trial. If I had to summarize, like one is the problem still valid, right? Are users still complaining about that issue? Yes, no. If yes, you know, what's the quality of my trial? Is it equivalent to other things I've learned? Are there just other pressures that are pushing me? to move on to some other things. So in this case, I think my manager's pressure, the way I read the room was really around like, hey, could we do other high confidence things to meet our goals? And I think that's a very valid way of thinking. And in that case, it's okay for me to move on to something else, but then I could still have that itching feeling that like, hey, I really haven't learned much about like why this particular issue is influencing the way customers retain on the platform. Yes. Yes, I will quote the, the words of Mr. Kenny Rogers. Uh, the song The Gambler, which is you got to know when to hold, know when to fold, know when to walk away, and know when to run. Obviously, in your career, you don't want to run away from too many things, but know when to hold and when to fold is very, very important. Um, I'll keep it short and brief. And then my guilty pleasure is um, I have a fantastic taco truck in my house, so I like to grab tacos. Um, Sorry, you have wow. a taco truck in your house? Did I hear that right? <laughs> Near my house. Near. I don't have a taco truck in my house yet, but okay. it would be a nice idea for a summer uh, picnic to have a taco truck in the backyard. Yeah. I thought that was a, an amazing dedication to tacos, and uh, <laughs> but it's good that it's just down the street. Red, did you have another audience question? Absolutely. And I, it's Tuesday, folks. So it Taco Tuesday, it's raining down upon us. So if you're hungry... Go ahead and honor the time tradition of eating a taco today in honor of Charles and his taco truck in his house, apparently, but not just kidding. Okay. So moving on to our next question, this is coming from yellow. So we've got purple. Thank you before. Now we're moving to another color in the rainbow. Why not? The question is when roadblocks occur and calling them out, if F's SVP, that's a you know senior VP said, go with it. But then transition occurs at the company. Maybe the SVP moves on. How do you proceed with the roadblocks from the new executives when the overall product deliverables are at stake? So you're given one task from an SVP, they get moved out, new one gets moved in, and now the work is compromised. What do you do besides eating a cheeseburger or a taco or, you know? (laughs) Yeah, you might want to grab a cold one, take a drink, relax. Uh, No, I think 
the key thing when a transition happens is always to understand why that transition happened. And so the transition might be because, you know, the exec moved on to a different role or that there might be a change in strategy. And whenever there's a transition, it's a, it's a good time to recap and reiterate whether the current strategy and priorities are still the same. If they're still the same, I think you have to stay the course. But if there is a change in strategy or there's a change in priorities, there's a change in what you're optimizing for, I think it's important to have an alignment discussion to say, you know, this is the project I'm working on and it was intended to drive this outcome. Is this outcome still consistent with the strategy that, you know, the organization is pushing? And you should have a point of view on whether it is or whether it's not. And if the strategy has changed for the org, then you should have a point of view on whether this ladder is up. And if it doesn't, you should come forward with some recommendations. But if it does, you want to restate that your point of view is that the strategy is still consistent with the project and the outcomes you're trying to drive. And here's why. And that way you are, you have an insecure buy-in from that new SVP who has taken over the project. That's what I would do. Fantastic advice. Okay. Well, I want to be sensitive to time. We've got about eight minutes, Jeff, to... Uh continue to proceed with answering the questions. Do we have time for potentially another question or another answer? Uh, the show is yours, my friend. Well, we have another inclusive product management accelerator alumni here. So I couldn't help but invite uh, Ismail up on stage. So Ismail, what's your comment or question for the panel here? All right, Jeff, thank you. And uh, thanks to the panels for answering all our questions. I appreciate it also, Charles and Kim. So the question that I have for you guys is that, how do you actually balance between data-driven and you know decision-making with intuition i know especially when both can lead to mistakes can you share an example where you know you face those situations i can take this one first um the thing is data-driven intuition are two sides of the same coin in uh, product parlance you know data-driven is a very normal thing and uh, intuition is what folks call product sense I'll say product sense is built over time, seeing different patterns or just having experienced different things or just being curious. Anytime I'm like walking through my house or through my neighborhood or just in life, I'm always looking at things and trying to break them apart to understand the why. I'll say depending on the problem you're trying to solve, you have to leverage which is available to you and also the time you have. So for example, if you're working on a quick concept project, you don't have time to do any quantitative research. You may want to do qualitative research. What does that mean? You look, you go to an online forum where people are talking, read the comments that can give you some sort of um, signal versus you're working on a longer term project where you have the chance to do like a survey or something quant, or there's a data source or data store that has like existing or historical data that you can mine to be more data driven. I think at Amazon, they had one of the best data dashboards I've seen. So that was a very data-driven organization. And obviously, my current company, Netflix, is very well known for A-B tests. So before we uh, ship anything, we actually have a hunch, we get clear on the why, we build the experience, and we A-B test the different variants. And the winning variant is the one that ships. And the ones that don't win, we just uh, take them out. Or if the test is inconclusive, we run it again. So I'd say... Data-driven, if you have the ability or in a place that has like data, but even if you're in a place that doesn't have data, being able to leverage directional qualitative data is helpful. But when you don't have any of those, making a, an informed bet and then checking in frequently to adjust that decision when you have more signals, inputs, or data is how I think about it. Um, I'd love to hear um, from Dosu and Inkem. I love what you said. They're two sides of the same coin. And I would always think of my intuition in a product setting as the source of my hypothesis. The source of your hypothesis can be steeped in a data insight, but if it's an intuition you have based on some way you like to use the product or some observations you've had about the way people use the product or problems they have, your intuition informs what hypothesis you have. And if you're building products in a principled way, you need to have a clear hypothesis, and then you need a way to validate that hypothesis. And in that case, are you validating it with quantitative data or qualitative data? Either way, I don't think they conflict each other. I think your intuition can be like the generation point of your hypothesis, and then you lean on what data sources you have, whether it's 
qualitative or quantitative to help inform what decision you make. I wanted to add that I think it's also understanding the blind spots in both and factoring that in when you're making a decision, as well as like, in addition, the cost of either of them. So just a specific example, I remember when I joined Microsoft and I was working on Bing flights and it was as simple as me just thinking about like, hey, our flights products is in the US and it's in India, for example, but how many direct flights are there between US and India? And that's not something that the data told us. Or that's not something the rest of the team thought about. But for me, it was like, hey, I'm a traveler. A lot of these flights have like layovers and they are travel hubs. How do we think about a consistent experience for the average traveler? And that was a very trivial insight that led us to just acquire so many users and just led to like the flight status experience being one of the most like celebrated ones at Bing, just based off intuition. So I think it's just really knowing like what can your data not tell you, especially when you're doing things around like new product introduction, right? Data is really good. In-product data is really good at telling you what your existing users do. But sometimes intuition, being very mindful, by the way, that like, especially for us on the West Coast, we are sometimes in a bubble. So you want to make sure that if you're doing research, you're not recruiting people who are just like all of you in the room. And then you're sort of telling yourself the same thing. And maybe that's what's also forming your intuition. So I would say like, as you think about the blind spots, especially as you think about your own intuition, make sure you're interacting with other people who are not like you and taking time to listen and probe so that you can ultimately build a better product. Huge plus one. I love it. Excellent. I love the knowledge being exchanged and shared here. Ismail, thanks for the question. Got some great responses there. So insightful question, insightful answers. We're out of time. We got to get to concluding thoughts, make sure that this trio here gets to decide what they want to leave the audience with. So, and Kim, you came off mute. I'll let you go first. So I would say definitely that mistakes are normal. It happens to all of us. And don't be afraid, as Charles had mentioned, to probe someone else on their own mistake. And I'm happy to like offer support if any of you needs after this podcast. Wonderful. Thanks for being here. Dosu, any concluding thoughts you want to leave the audience with? Yeah, for sure. I definitely think it's important to understand why you made the mistake and what your learnings are going forward. And as long as you have learnings, they're not mistakes. You just learned a new way of avoiding a certain problem or a new way of not building a product in a certain way. Thank you very much. And I'll say the only constant in life is change. So with change comes mistakes and learning. So lean into it and take a pause, take a beat. Don't let it overwhelm you. Keep it moving. All right. Thank you, Charles, Nakim, and Dosu. It was great to hear your expertise today. Appreciate your time and your knowledge that you shared with everybody. And for everybody else, my concluding thought is let's build a more inclusive product management community. So if you're a product manager, reach out to me and pop on stage one of these days in the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast, or join us. We have the Inclusive Product Management Summit on May 12th and May 13th here in Seattle, where we're going to bring together a wonderful group of product managers from all over the country, connecting with each other and connecting with the fellows in our inclusive product management accelerator. And if you're an aspiring product manager, I hope you come away from this conversation knowing there's no one way into product and that the product management center here at the University of Washington and such wonderful people like Charles Nakem and Dosu, uh, we're all here to, to support you and help you how we can. So looking forward to building a more diverse, inclusive and skilled product management community with everybody who's listening. Take care, everyone.